You are listening to the Mother Lab Podcast. Welcome to the 10th episode of the Mother Lab Podcast. Mother Lab stands for Maternal Outcomes for Translational Health Equity Research. The Mother Lab is run by Dr. Amuta Onokaga, founder and director of the Mother Lab, housed at Tufts University School of Medicine. Dr. Ao is the Julia Ao Koro Professor of Breath Maternal Health and Assistant Dean of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion at Tufts University School of Medicine. Dr. Ao is also a member of the Racial Inequities in Maternal Health Commission. My name is Amaya, and I am the co-chair of the Community Engagement Advocacy and Policy Committee. Thank you, Amaya. Hi, I'm Stephanie, and I also am a co-chair of the Community Engagement Advocacy and Policy Committee. Today, we are joined by Dr. Inab Acourt and Dr. Sinmi Bamboucher. Dr. Acourt is a clinical reproductive psychologist practicing at Cedars-Sinai in Los Angeles. Her work focuses on mood and anxiety disorders during a birthing person's reproductive life course. This work assesses and associated uh, biopsychosocial processes that can increase one's risk and perinatal mood and anxiety disorders. Dr. Bamboucher is, is a certified psychiatrist who specializes in reproductive psychiatry. Her work focuses on treating women of color with anxiety, depression, and mood disorders. Doctors Acourt and Babouche, who we will refer to as Enoch and Simi from here on, are launching a new study called the RISE study, which stands for Resources, Inspiration, Support, and Empowerment for Black Maternal Mental Health. This study is designed to assess one's risk factors for developing perinatal mood and anxiety disorders and addresses them. Thank you so much for joining us, Inav and Cindy. Um, so just to kick us, off, kick us all off, can you tell us about what sparked your interest in reproductive health, specifically reproductive mental health? Yeah, um, well, I'll start, I guess. I'll start first. So I'm Cindy Bambashan, I'm a psychiatrist, reproductive psychiatrist. And my interest first started, I would say, during my medical school rotations when I was doing, had to go through psychiatry and pediatrics and internal medicine. And I went into medical school thinking I was going to be a psychiatrist, but I wasn't sure what kind. And then as I was doing my rotations, I was doing the OB rotations and found out I really loved talking to people when I was doing their public exams, when they were in postpartum, when they were coming in for their annual visits. And I was spending so much more time talking to them than anybody else was. And I realized there's a lot that they have to say at these visits and they don't have anyone else to talk to about it. And so I thought, well, I could be a gynecologist or an obstetrician, but realized that that is not where they're unfortunately able to focus their time because of the way that healthcare is in this country and the system. And so I continued with psychiatry. And when I got to residency at UCSF, I was able to meet a mentor there. And she's a reproductive psychiatrist on a glazer. And that was the first time I ever found out that reproductive psychiatrists exist, existed. And so what she did and what she does is she works with women and individuals during that especially in the perinatal period, but really through any time where hormonal changes affect and interact with your um, mental state. So fertility, postpartum, menopause, all of that. And so once I saw that that was a thing that I could do and a person that I could work with, I went totally ran with it and delved deeper into the field. And so I have really been connected to a lot of great people in the field, which is how I met Enoch. Yes, and I'm so happy that I met you, and I'm so happy to be included. Thank you for having me on the podcast. Um, it's an honor. Um, so for me, I kind of um, I have a similar experience um, as Simi. 
um, in my older years. But actually, when I was growing up, I would spend time in my grandparents' um, home. Uh, my grandfather was uh, an OB-GYN physician, and my grandmother was a pediatrician, and they had an in-home clinic. And, um, you know, I wasn't there often. They didn't actually live in this country. But whenever I would visit, I noticed that um, although sometimes women and patients would leave there happy or content, um, there were other times that they seemed upset, distressed, unhappy. And I remembering, I remember even from a young age, you know, kind of wondering who checked in with them about how they were feeling. Um, and I even recall um, when we moved out of my family home, um, I found a diary, um, a diary entry from when I was like eight or nine years old, um, that I said I wanted to be a psychiatrist um, to help those women. I spelled psychiatrist wrong, <laughs> um, but I seem to have some understanding of what they do. I'm not sure how, um, but it's, you know, really been an, a long time interest and really um, passion of mine to help um, individuals as they go through their reproductive journey. And it started from a very young age. I learned as I went through high school and college and um, then later graduate school in clinical psychology, um, you know, that there are a lot of different ways um, that we can help and we can guide individuals through their reproductive journeys. And I was trying to figure out, sort of similar to Simi, what my role was going to be. Um, and I knew I really loved research. And so I wanted a, a career that would allow me to have a really healthy balance between um, my clinical work and my research. And um, I actually thought about going into the field of medicine and becoming, again, I wasn't sure like Simi, a psychiatrist or OB and applied to medical school and applied to clinical psychology graduate programs and, um, you know, gratefully got into both, but then realized that if I wanted that true balance, really 50-50, um, I got the sense that it, I might be better um, served with a PhD. And so that's the route that I went. And really from the very beginning, about 20, 21 years ago, started to do research in um, women's mental health. That's incredible. You both have had such amazing journeys and thank you so much for sharing. I think one of the things that we know is that reproductive psychology and reproductive psychiatry is very understudied and very underfocused. So we just wanted to touch upon what you think the most important information that is not being widely spread related to maternal health psychiatry is. Well, that's a good question. I was thinking about that earlier. And it's, I think it's, what is cool about this question is um, while we probably have, Anav and I have similar responses, it might vary a little bit based on the medication piece from a psychiatrist versus a clinical, more clinical research piece that she is so expert in. But I think one of the things to me that I see every day in my practice as a reproductive psychiatrist is this misinformation about medications in pregnancy. And I think that is one of the most important things because for whatever reason, people are taking large, there's a large proportion of the population who need to take some kind of medication, whether it's for depression, anxiety, bipolar disorder, whatever, ADHD, right? ADHD is very common. It's being increasingly diagnosed. And these are all things that people are dealing with. And then they're being told when they get pregnant, they can't take any of these medications anymore. So it's a really, it's a public health issue. It's a quality of life issue. Um, it's a mental health issue. And so I feel like to me, that's the thing I just hear 
across the board, even from physician friends when they're wanting to get pregnant and they say, well, I know I can't take this. I don't know who told you that because that's not true. So (laughs) that's my most important thing. I can't, I couldn't agree more um, with everything Simi said. And I think that there's just a, a misinformation in regards to the the medical side, but but lack of information in general about the wide range of interventions that are available. And people kind of think it's it's medications only or um, support groups and medications or only psychotherapy, or they don't understand that there's really a wide range. And it depends on um, so many different factors, um, you know, in, it, primarily your symptoms and symptom severity um, and how much those symptoms interfere with your functioning. So I always, you know, wonder, you know, are we doing a good enough job informing our PCPs, our primary care physicians, which includes OB-GYNs and family physicians, um, you know, to have them understand that there's so much available that there are support groups, that there are mommy and me, there that there is a breastfeeding support, that there are various, um, you know, programs out there that would help someone who's just having the normal kind of stress, strain, and adjustment to parenthood. That that is, it's a difficult time. That doesn't mean that you're mentally ill. And that there's a lot of really great resources and support out there for individuals who may be struggling, may be stressed, you know, and need some help. But that's not where it stops, right? Then we do have individual psychotherapy of various kinds. So someone may try one and it might not be a great fit, but then they're not informed. That doesn't mean therapy's not for you. It may be that particular type of therapy. It may be that therapist. I'm not for everybody, right? So it needs to be the right fit. And then like Simi was saying, once you're getting into severe symptoms, interference with functioning and certain um, you know, mental illnesses that really require medication in order to function. Um, and there's no shame in that, you know, you know, you could be diagnosed with gestational diabetes in your pregnancy and you could try all kinds of um maybe more psychosocial kind of things, you know, you could dot, change your diet, you could exercise, you could reduce stress, you know, maybe that'll help. And they usually start with that. But once those don't help, and you need to take care of yourself, your health and your baby's health, and that doctor might prescribe insulin or an insulin-like medication. Well, I think most individuals wouldn't hesitate. This is no different. This is just not different. It's hard for me to kind of like what Simi was saying that we get frustrated. Like, why is this not out there? Why are we not informing people about this? Mm-hmm. Um, so that's all, that's what I would add. Right. And as we're talking about this, I think it's also important to know, like, what is the resources that are available generally for people right out of the hospital or right after giving birth? That's a great question. I mean, I'm happy to take that. I, I would love for Simi to add because- I just had to put a bunch of resources together in a in a comprehensive list for our RISE study for our care navigators to be able to support um, the participants in our study. And, you know, I'm thinking about that because in the reproductive psychology program at Cedars, we have a lot of in-house support. And I've been developing that with Simi's help. 
since, you know, for years now. Um, but not everybody who listens to your podcast is necessarily a patient at Cedar sinai And similarly, not everyone in our RISE study is a patient at Cedar sinai We actually recruit from the, all over the country. You could be living anywhere um, and participate. So that's why we needed to put this list together. And there are a lot of great resources. There are resources that are um, international and national, like uh, postpartum support international. Um, so I'm not going to list all of these, okay. <laughs> all of these yeah. wonderful resources, but maybe Simi, you could add, um, because we've got the international um, support, like postpartum support international, we've got um, national support, like maternal mental health now. Um, and then we've got a lot of um, wonderful support that's specific to the BIPOC community. So I didn't know if you wanted to add those to me. Yeah, I think that in terms of with the that community, BIPOC individuals, the resources may be a little bit more difficult to find because of that niche. And I think that I, the, the lack of visibility of the issues in, in these communities, the lack of providers of color that, that people might feel that they have comfort talking to and discussing what they're going through. So within all of these, most of the, at least most of these organizations that um, ANAP is going to share with you, they do have resources geared towards women of color, individuals sure. of color, which is great. Um, in terms of specific ones. Yeah. I so I was thinking specifically of therapy for black girls. Yes. That one, mm -hmm. that one, um, melanated mental health. I'm trying to think about ones that are, um, not just like one area of the country, just keeping in mind the listeners. Okay. Um, and then I just recently heard about sisters mentally mobilized. Um, oh, and I, I think that. that might be California specific though. Um, uh, and you had added one to this list or maybe it was another, um, um, when women of color therapy, I maybe, and yeah, then, you had added that. And, and then, then there's for fertility issues with the broken brown egg. I love that they they have um, so much great information on their website, the broken brown egg, um, for, um, fertility issues. And then, um, doulas like, um, again, a lot of these are LA and California based, but, We'll share the list with you, um, and we would love for you to, you know, bring more visibility to these organizations because, you know, sometimes it's just you're not really sure where to even begin. Uh -huh. um, no, thank you so much for, for mentioning that. I know you uh, listed Therapy for Black Girls. I definitely have them as one of my podcasts. Um and we will be sure to link the list of resources in the chat. Um, so being that you you mentioned the RISE study, we're going to continue to pivot in that direction. So we wanted to know if you could talk more about the RISE study and why you think uh, the study will be of interest to listeners. Okay, um, thank, thank you for the question. And we so appreciate your support. Um, we actually just launched um, this uh, NIH funded, um, it is a pilot RCT or randomized controlled trial. Um, Simi and I have been working closely with another colleague of ours at Cedars-Sinai, Dr. Kimberly Gregory, who's a maternal fetal medicine specialist. Um, and we've partnered um, as our the principal investigators with two community partners. Um, one I've mentioned already, Maternal Mental Health Now, a local organization, and then a wonderful BIPOC-led organization on the East Coast called Candlelit Care. 
And together we've um, been working on this project now. Simi, has it been like almost three years, I think, since you introduced me yeah. to yeah. at Candlelit. And it's just been such a really natural and really great collaboration where we all put our heads together and we were just kind of um, all focused on the same goal, which is how can we improve clinical care for Black pregnant individuals? specifically during pregnancy and the postpartum period. And there's just a lot of doom and gloom in the media. And it's important that all of the statistics and, and um, you know, that the upsetting, you know, outcomes are, are, they need to be discussed and it needs to be widespread information. And at the same time, I think some people are getting frustrated because it's like, okay, we know that this is a problem. This isn't new. So what can we do? What can we actually do? And this is a systemic issue. So, you know, a lot needs to change. It's not just our study or research studies like ours that are going to make the most change. Um, the change really needs to come from multiple levels, right? So um, certainly um, new laws and, um, you know, new legislation around um, these topics, um, training more um, BIPOC um, physicians, um, psychiatrists, psychologists, and others, um, training physicians and nurses um, in cultural humility. Um, so there's a lot of different things that need to happen, right? So what we're trying to do um, is in addition to that, and we hope that the RISE study um, will, will have a really great impact. I, I wonder, you know, as far as your listeners and interest, I mean, we, we are recruiting Black pregnant individuals um, anywhere in the United States um, between 12 and 32 weeks of pregnancy. You do have to be at least 18 years um, of age. And the concept behind the study or the premise is really what we all know, Black people are at higher risk for physical and mental health complications during pregnancy, and this is due to the cumulative effects of racism and discrimination and microaggressions. And so our study is designed to test a, a brand new mobile health web application um, that's been informed by real world experiences um, with culturally relevant modules that's gonna allow our participants to engage and learn about stress management techniques, help them create a self-care, excuse me, a self-care plan to achieve emotional well-being. There's um, modules on communicating with providers who don't like you, don't look like you. Um, there are modules around um, self-advocacy. And so, you know, we do hope that your listeners um, who might be Black pregnant individuals themselves or may know someone who might be interested would perhaps share our flyer, which we will of course share with you both. Um, and I guess the question we usually get is like, what, what do I have to do, right? So yeah, I'm interested. I would love to participate. I'm a Black pregnant individual. Um, so essentially what we're asking for is a few hours of your time. So primarily what we will ask you to do after you learn about the study, get all the details, ask all your questions, the whole consenting process probably takes about an hour. Um, and then we would have you engage with our mental health web application and complete some online questionnaires. Um, you know, typically the online questionnaires will each take 30, 40 minutes. Um, we have one in the pregnancy, 
one month postpartum and three months postpartum. And then the uh, mobile health application, that just depends on you, right? How much you want to engage with it. But we say between one and three hours. Um, and then we have an optional part of the study. Um, we're very interested in um, the research um, sort of decades of research now that suggests that stress increases inflammation. So we want to explore that by collecting a small amount of blood um, from our participants. Again, it's optional um, part of the study, and we collect that uh, in the prenatal visit and the three months postpartum. And we do um, compensate all of our participants with a $20 gift card for each element of the study. So every time someone um, you know completes the surveys, they get a 20 excuse me dollar gift card. Um, if they decide to provide blood, they get a $20 gift card. So we kind of um, will say it depends on your level of participation, but it's between 60 and $100 um, of compensation. That's awesome. And this is an amazing accessible study. And we really do think a lot of our listeners would be interested in it. So we will definitely link all the materials for recruitment below. So please look in the podcast description for that. Um, and we really appreciate you talking about the RISE study. But one thing we wanted to kind of focus on is that you kind of, you mentioned a lot of the new laws and legislation that need to take place. And one thing that we really focus on at the Mother Lab is policy. So we, we're wondering about how the current policy landscape around mental health has impacted your work and what do you think can be improved about those policies? I'm going to let you answer <laughs> now that you know a lot about the policies. This is, and it's just, I learned about them from you. So I, <laughs> so yeah, tell me what's happening. I'm tell happy to everybody. share. <laughs> I, I have to say I am not as up to date. Um, I, I was really um, kind of plugged in several years ago and was honored um, to participate in the California State Senate Health Committee hearing. Um, it was back in 2017, and there were a couple of bills, um, really critical um, maternal mental health bills. Um, one was related to depression screening and ensure case management, and another was on educating nursing staff and others about maternal mental health. And so when I was asked on behalf of Maternal Mental Health Now to come and speak um, at this committee hearing, um, you know, back in 2017, and those bills passed, it was very, very exciting. Um, so being, you know, invited to testify on behalf of Cedars-Sinai and Maternal Mental Health Now um, was really a privilege and a pleasure. Um, I know less about the more current um, legislature. Um, I do, you know, try to keep up to date. There's a lot of great local organizations where that's their area of expertise. So I would probably not want to misspeak and would defer to them to share more. Um, but I think we just have a long way to go. I think that there's a lot that still remains to be um, done on the topic. I mean, I think that that goes to show that um, just so much work does need to be done in this area. Uh, I know there's there's a little incremental change that's happening. I know with the 988 number that was released, that was really big in the mental health community, but um, even that, those resources are always inundated and you know people it's it's difficult for people to even get in contact with anyone from that line uh so don't thank you so much for your yeah, i would just add okay. one thing i would just add one thing that's appropriate you know that might be helpful to include is the black maternal health momnibus act so i've been trying to follow that and learn more about it because 
it's addressing like the more urgent crisis that's affecting thousands of American families every year. Um, you know, we know that as many as 80% of maternal deaths are preventable with proper care and treatment. And so I think that would be one that I would mention to keep an eye on. Yes, thank you. Now we are actively tracking the, the mom and Oh, you guys know more, much more than we do. <laughs> um, um, at the Weather Lab, and I know a lot of the um, the provisions of, of those legislation is to provide a lot of the postpartum care that you did mention earlier. So well, thank you so much. Um, so I wanted to ask, like, so how do you think we can encourage birthing persons to change their, perspe their perceptions about seeking treatment? You know, there's a lot, of, we talked about stigma, we talked about lack of resources, misinformation. So there's already 20,000 hurdles <laughs> to overcome. So what would you think would be a good first step in helping uh, that community? Again, we, like you we said, we talked about stigma and resources, and I think that is really the first step, which is hearing more people talk about their experiences and being recognized or having providers that they go to recognize their experiences because I can't, it's so common how often I talk with somebody and they're like, oh, postpartum depression, it's like five years later, and they say, oh, I think I had that. When you describe it like that, I had that. And no one said anything to me about it. And so it's something that the providers aren't screening for. It's also something that families are, it's kind of this mentality a lot of times in a lot of different cultures. I know I'm Nigerian American, so my family's Nigerian and also in Black communities and other communities of color. I know a Latinx community sometimes too. It's this idea of, well, is this hard? Just do it. It's hard for everybody. It was hard for mm -hmm. me. Wow. And just yeah. keep on going. And wow. just power through. Yeah, just power through. So it's even on that familial level, not really wanting or being able to recognize that perhaps somebody might need a little bit more help. Um, so I think there's that, getting it on a community level where it's okay to talk about it. So I always encourage my I do it myself. I encourage my patients and my friends to talk about it really casually in your communities, just your experiences with therapy, your experiences with anxiety or depression, so that it doesn't have to be this secret that you're hiding. So I think that's a huge thing. Um, and the more that celebrities come out about their struggles or their experiences is really great. I wish, you know, I think Chrissy Teigen is somebody recently who talked a lot of who has always been very open about her mental health challenges and postpartum and pregnancy loss and so yes. just I'm just I don't know her I would love to meet her but I think I'm just really grateful for to her for using her platform to really highlight that even beautiful models married to John Legend have <laughs> <laughs> absolutely it doesn't matter right it doesn't mm -hmm. matter how um, attractive or wealthy or educated you are this affects everyone. And that's why it's so important. And I, I couldn't agree more, Simi. And I feel like, um, you know, individuals of all races maybe would admit feeling like their concerns are being overlooked or they're not being trusted to know what's going on with their own bodies and minds. And I feel like, you know, some interviews, for example, with Serena Williams, Beyonce Knowles kind of remind us um, that our medical history is really littered with accounts of Black women being dehumanized during labor. And this doesn't just go away because we want it to, right? 
Um, yes, awareness. Um, yes, conversation. Um, but it does take these strong voices to say, look, you know, it's a myth that, um, you know, the, the reason that that black families struggle with these um, adverse outcomes more than white families is because of low socioeconomic status. That isn't the case. Uh -huh. And so it, it, I think it requires like a real social, just kind of like everybody needing to be, you know, on the same page. And like Simi said, just getting everybody talking, um, you know, I think my wish for the future is that all birthing people are heard, cared for, provided treatment immediately, um, you know, for, for all perinatal conditions. And, and truly that mental illness is treated the exact same way as physical illness. If I see that in my lifetime, I will feel like what a huge, incredible achievement <laughs> we have made. Because yes, I mean, I, I feel like in my culture too, it's like, oh, what are you complaining about? Women used to just be in the fields and you know, go into labor, deliver their baby. And, I don't know, throw the baby on their back and keep picking or something. It's like, what are you talking about? And where did you hear that? <laughs> like, why would you think that's true? Um, so yeah, I think, I think busting some of those myths is really important. I totally agree. I think just even highlighting the like universality of this issue is so important because it can feel so isolating in that moment. I've heard so many accounts of people just thinking like they were the only ones with these thoughts. They were the only ones that were going through it. And it seems like everyone else is able to get through it. And you yourself feel weak at that point. You feel like you're the only one that's in it. So we totally agree with the fact that it just needs to be a constant conversation. It just, we continually need to change that narrative. So we just really wanted to extend a huge thanks to you guys today. We really appreciate you sharing your expertise and being so informative. You guys are incredible and doing such amazing work in this field. Um, and yeah, we are just so happy to have the chance to talk to you and talk about the new RISE study. So to anyone who is listening, please, um, please look into it if you're interested in recruiting or if you're interested and being a part. And um, as always, make sure to follow the Mother Lab on all of our socials. Thank, Thank you. you.